0: Welcome back to the Space Alvi Institute podcast. I'm Andrew
1: Petiprin with Bobby Mixa. Bobby, how are you? I'm good, Andrew. Um, really excited about this uh, conversation today.
0: I am too. I, we have an interesting uh, situation here where I am an American in Texas, you are an American in Poland, and we are speaking today with a Pole in Texas. So we have all of our bases covered here. And uh, that guest is none other than Eva Thompson, who is professor emerita of Slavic Studies at Rice University. Professor Thompson, welcome to the Space Alvey Institute podcast. How are you?
2: I'm fine. Pleased to be here.
0: Well, we are. We're so happy that you're that you're here. And uh, we wanted to we wanted to talk to you a little bit today about Poland and Western civilization, about the the this this region of the world that you talk about as non-Germanic Central Europe. Uh, which is kind of a misunderstood and maybe even sometimes maligned place. Um, I wonder if we could start with this really, really broad question. What is the significance of Poland in particular to Western civilization?
2: Uh, am I supposed to answer this in one sentence? Are you giving me half an hour for this?
0: Well, maybe we'll just use that as a jumping-off point. Maybe the, you know, maybe we could back up to the history of it a little bit. You know, there are these key moments in Western history where Poland has Proved to be heroic, really has has kind of played a kind of savior role, and I wonder if that isn't um, that isn't appreciated enough. What do you think about that?
2: There are several such moments, and you know, there is this cynical saying that victors write history. And of course, that's the case, and I would say that Western Europeans have profited by uh, the sacrifices that non-Germanic Central Europe has made for the sake of Western civilization. And then they wiped out the history of East Central Europe from their books. And when you get a book on European history, you basically get the book on Western European history. You simply don't hear anything about what I call the non-Germanic Central Europe, because because if you did, maybe those European countries would not look as good as they do in most histories of Europe. So, uh, what I'm saying is that uh, non-Germanic Central Europe and Poland being the, the largest, uh, most significant country has been a kind of uh, uh, place and... and, and uh, uh, somehow <laughs> I'm at loss for the right word, but let's, let's call it, you know, it was the buffer zone for Western Europeans, a number of times in history, and Western Europeans used that buffer and thank very much and goodbye, and that was it. And isn't the entire area was forgotten in by historians and by uh, people who actually shaped our understanding of Western civilization? So I can just go from uh, you know the 20th century to the 19th and 18th and so forth, and just show you how uh, in many ways. Western Europe used Eastern Europe for its own security and its own uh, advantage, and basically was only too delighted to uh, call this territory of East Central Europe, non-Germanic Central Europe, as a sort of no man's land, a land without history, a land without stories to tell, a land without uh, any interesting uh, discoveries, important books and so forth. So let us, let us say try you know, something in the 20th century, the, the solidarity in Poland. Now, of course, solidarity did not abolish commun- communism single-handedly, but if it weren't for this enormous rising wave of opposition to communism, probably the fall of the Soviet Union would not have happened when it did happen. Uh, probably, Uh, the Soviets would still last for another generation or so, maybe even longer. What made the Soviets frightened was, of course, that this solidarity movement became a huge movement. 10 million people belonged to it. And it started in August of, of 1980. And by December, it had 10 million people. It's just unbelievable. So, this is the sort of thing that frightened the Soviets and that very much embarrassed Western Europeans. I still remember the television shows in which some German politicians talked to Russian politicians about what are we going to do with solidarity? Now, this was the, basically the attitude on the surface, but deep inside, Western Europe was very much afraid that there would be some upheaval, the boats would be rocking and that the good life that they have enjoyed, thanks to this buffer zone in Eastern Europe, uh, will somehow disappear. So what I am really trying to say is that uh, that without solidarity, events would not have gone the way they did in Eastern Europe. Communists would not have fallen and... uh, Basically, the countries of that area would not have uh, regained freedom. Of course, nobody is really interested in those countries, meaning that Western Europeans would even prefer that uh, this territory remained in Russian hands because, well, you know, again, a buffer zone, and we could have uh, lived like that forever. But I would say that when it comes to Western civilization and Western uh, Christianity, if it weren't for this Polish solidarity, if it weren't then for the expression of uh, real loyalty to Catholicism, which Polis displayed at that time. Things might have been even worse for Christianity and ultimately for for Western Europe. But this is really a very short and, and incomplete story of what happened in the 1980s in Europe. But let us just go back you know, to the early 20th century and speak about something that literally nobody in Western, uh, in the Western world remembers. Uh, or rather, I'm talking about historians. If you take the history of Europe, for 20th century history of Europe, prominent historians don't even mention that. And that is the Polish-Soviet War in 1919, 1920. What happened then, you know, after the Treaty of Versailles, uh, independence of countries of Central Europe was finally established, and uh, however, the Treaty of Versailles did not uh, did not uh, decisively speak about the eastern border of Poland. So, what happened was a war started between the Soviet Union, that was just about beginning to take shape, and Poland. Now, Poland at that point had absolutely no money, no way of organizing the 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 army uh it didn't even collect the first round of taxes and it had to fight this enormous big huge soviet union and isn't that incredible that they won they won even though the armies of marshal tukhachevsky the soviet marshal were very close to warsaw and people were very pessimistic that the force was going to fall And what's going to happen next was that Germany will be taken over by the communists. Because in Germany at that time, there was this enormous mega inflation. There were communists that were very popular, people like Rosa Luxemburg and uh, Karl Liebknecht, And Germany was ripe for communist rule at that time. Same in Hungary. In Hungary, Bela Kuhn was a communist and was about to form the government. So, if Poland fell to this in this war, if Poland fell into Soviet hands at that time, Germany and Austria, uh, Germany and Hungary would probably follow, and then, of course, the entire Europe. So, Poland, by winning this war uh, in 1919, 1920, saved Western Europe. There is no doubt about it. Saved it from the communist takeover. And when it comes to Christianity, of course, you understand what a Soviet takeover means for Christianity, and especially if uh, at that time the entire Europe, or most of it, would have been taken over by, by the Russians. So uh, we have here an example of a situation where one country really saves the entire continent, and then is not even mentioned in the histories of this continent. I'm thinking of, for instance, of Paul Johnson's History of Modern Europe. I was looking at the uh, index. There is no such thing as, as the 1919-1920 war. It just didn't happen. It was so, you know, Pauls were some, doing something, but it's unclear what, it who cares anyway? So, you know, this very respected historian Simply didn't consider it important to mention that this imminent takeover of Europe by by the communists was really not a joke. They said, "Well, you know, it happened," and and then Western Europeans had the freedom to live for another generation. And of course, in in Germany, you got something that that uh, was not. Uh, not in the Western European tradition, namely Hitler, but that's another story. Still, the fact remains that Poland was not recognized as a country, as a community that saved Western Europe from from a takeover. And then if we go back in history, we'll find, of course, the very famous uh, uh, act of the Polish King Jan Sobieski in 1683 when the Ottomans, another empire that was threatening Europe Europe from the south, when the Ottomans were about to take Vienna and when Emperor Leopold I sent letters to his fellow uh, kings and and rulers all over Europe saying, you know, help, help, help. And the only country that responded was Poland. Actually, it was uh, Polish King Jan Sobieski who decided to help uh, the Austrian emperor to, uh, to defend Vienna and to basically push the Turks away from, uh, from Austria. Now, it was not in Poland's interest to do it. And I'll tell you why. It was not even in Catholicism's interest to do it. Because if, if Sobieski didn't do it, Vienna would have fallen. Vienna would have fallen, and the entire Western Europe suddenly would have to fight a war of survival because the Ottomans would go further. So uh, if that happened, uh, at the same time, Poland would have grown in strength and prestige and could have uh, converted to, to Catholicism the eastern territories of Belarus and Ukraine. And we know that Catholicism resists Resists uh, uh, communism better than than Eastern Orthodoxy, so so the entire Europe could have been Christianized uh, in the Western uh, in the in, in the Western Church, whereas countries like England and France and Germany might not have had the energy after fighting the Ottomans to do what they did, namely colonize both Europe and other, other areas in, in, in the world. So it, could have been, it would have been better for Poland politically. And even I would argue from the point of view of the survival of Christianity in Europe, if Poland did not help uh, Leopold. But what happened? Poland did. And you know what? The Austrians didn't even pay the, uh, Poland the, the cost of bringing this enormous army to, to Austria. Poland got nothing for it, not even a recognition in Austrian history books. There's one little tablet somewhere in the uh, streets, among the streets of Vienna, saying, "Here Jan Sobieski was here, But nothing else. This was Austrian uh, uh, gratitude for 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 Polish help. Of course, the word gratitude doesn't exist in politics, so I apologize for using it. But uh, what actually is? the sort of laughter of history is the fact that a hundred years later a descendant of Leopold I uh, participated in the partitions of Poland, got a chunk of Poland twice, Maria Teresa, that was in 1772 once and then 1795 the second time. So you know that was That was Austria's quote-unquote gratitude for what Poland did. So, again, you know, you can say, oh, well, my speculation here that it would have been better for Europe and Christianity if Poland didn't help Austria. That's just speculation. But the fact is that uh, by going to the help of Leopold, uh, uh, Jan Sobieski basically saved Western Europe from another enormous war with the Ottomans. Ottomans were enormous... uh, very powerful empire and it was the time when they still could take over Europe. Well, they didn't and and as we know, uh, history went the other way. And I could just go back now to the Middle Ages and speak of my favorite uh, Polish lawyer named Paweł Wodkowicz, who was the first person in Europe to speak about the rights of nations and the rights of peoples, regardless of whether they were Christianized or not. Uh, You see, there was this uh, group of people named the Teutonic Knights who left Jerusalem after the Crusades and decided they are going to do the quote-unquote conversions in Europe. And they actually went to the Baltic Sea and killed and robbed and destroyed, and they called it conversion to Christianity. Now, a Polish lawyer had the documentation in hundreds of cases. And he went to the uh, Council of uh, Constance in 1414 and tried to present that documentation uh, and proposed to the Pope that uh, that the order of Teutonic Knights be dissolved as heretical. Well, it didn't work out. The Pope himself was German. The whole assembly was dominated by ethnic Germans and 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 the this Polish lawyer simply didn't have the uh guts didn't have well not the guts he did have that but <laughs> but he didn't have the majority you know to 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 accomplish something. The Pope did actually upbraid, it, upbraid the uh Teutonic knights but he didn't declare them uh, heretics and so the behavior that Pavel Vodkovich called Heresia Prussiana, the Prussian heresy, simply went on in history. And uh, as you know, in the early uh, 16th century, the Teutonic Knights' order dissolved itself, and the master grandmaster of the order became a became a prince, and he uh, claimed the property on the Baltic Sea. At that time, it was he was still a vassal of the Polish king. But later on, out of this, there appeared the country of Prussia, which Chesterton called the bastard country of Europe because it was not supposed to appear there, you know, the bastard country of Europe. Though. So, And then, of course, Prussia participated in the partitions of Poland. So it, it basically worked to destroy Catholicism in Poland. In Bismarck's time, uh, Polish children were beaten for saying their prayers in Polish. There's a very famous case in the town of Brześnia. Actually, this happens three three years after Bismarck died, but it was still the same policy. Uh, Children at school, uh, at that time, children did pray in school, so the children were told to say their prayers, and they did. And uh, they were saying them in Polish. And then, of course, the teacher decided that this is not acceptable. And every child that the, said the prayer in Polish was beaten. So that was, you know, if you beat kids that are seven, eight years old, they're never going to to uh, uh, to repeat the mistake of saying those prayers in Polish. But they didn't know German. I mean, this Prussia took over the Polish territory, and, and then little by little, generation after generation, they, they uh, Germanized. There's an enormous amount of... Of, of Germans today that are of polish origin but this is still another story so you see this is this is these are just the the hot points of uh, of uh, uh, Central European history and, and uh, I believe that if it weren't for some of those hot points Europe's history might have been much less uh, favorably uh, favor Sort of favorable for Western Europeans than it has been. But what I'm saying is, there is an incredible abbreviation of what needs to be said about it. There's a lot of to be said. There's a lot of uh, misjudgments that are being passed on uh, on this territory. There's a lot of suggestion that this was sort of an uncouth, uneducated, primitive kind of territory. Well, you know the universities in prague and krakow which where you are were uh created more or less at the same time at the university of vienna in fact the the university in prague was preceded the university of creation of the university of vienna so you know there's there's a attempt to say that these are these are peoples these are territories where people didn't really have any uh contact with Western civilization is simply nonsense. In Poland, uh, Catholicism probably survived better than in any other country except for Ireland, but we know what's going on in Ireland now. And in Poland today, you still have quite a, a strong a streak of Catholic thought, but uh, uh, at, under the present government in particular, there's a vigorous attempt at secularization and the fight is really this is a you know a fight for survival for catholicism i think not just in poland but uh in other places because if the present government succeeds in secularizing say the uh the education uh there will be there will be massive changes in in polish in the polish psyche i personally don't think that will happen because Poland went through <laughs> communism and secularization of education already. But it depends on the Polish uh, uh, elites, Catholic elites, and Polish clergy. Uh, they have to get to work right now. They have to start using those uh, big halls that they built in times of communism. You not know, to have uh, to use them for education of children, not just in uh, about uh, about matters religious but also matters of history. Uh, this was something that went on under communism and maybe we have to return to it right now. But this is something that still needs to be sorted out. Uh, basically, the situation right now is that Poland is, uh, has done all these things in the past and right now is in a rather precarious situation because its uh, it's traditions, its very uh, strong adherences to Christianity and Western culture. West, by Western culture, I mean the culture that is based on Greek thought, Roman law, and of course Christian, uh, Christian belief. These f- f- foundations are being attacked by uh, people who believe that Europe should go should be secular, secular to the point where uh, there's absolutely no mention of the transcendent of the of the holy and that's the way for humanity to go.
1: yeah, no you know the the, the threat now of taking away religious education in the schools and also I, I just saw that. Uh, the proposal for, is to get rid of uh, studying the history of the Battle of Grunwald, um, and to even get into many of those other, um, particularly conflicts with Germany, are just perhaps being eliminated. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking of somebody who who knew well the history of Poland, but also particularly the Polish literature, which is so so connected to that history. Um, John Paul II, and you know John Paul II. Many people in the, in, at least in the United States, and I'm sure places also outside of Poland, are not really familiar with uh, Polish literature. And how that shaped John Paul II's way of thinking, even in particular in the way that he he took on communism and took on secularization. Um, do you do you see like the the need to delve into John Paul II, his Polish background? And if so, like who are some of the major Polish writers and translations maybe that should be worked on right now? <sighs>
2: Well, I would say this: if you read Polish literature, if you are familiar with this, it's, it's guaranteed that you'll become or remain a Catholic. You know, this is a literature so permeated by with a Catholic vision of the world that it's almost frightening. You know, there's there's hardly anything there that is not telling you become a Catholic, be a Catholic, remain a Catholic. Even though the writers often you know fail, they're not very good Catholics. <laughs> so how do, how does it work? Well, uh, I don't know from which end should I start—the beginning or, 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 or the or, or the end—that is, twenty-second century. But let me mention the Renaissance poetry, which is really a great poetry, totally unknown in the West. It, there are translations, but those things are not uh, published. You know, in 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 such a way that that um, it's easy to to reach uh, reach them. You have to go through anthologies. You have to go through books that are about other things and then by the way you know there is this poet Kochanovsky who wrote great things well yes there was one and one of the greatest poets certainly in the 16 of the 16th century was Jan Kochanovsky and and he wrote uh, poets with some prose and his uh, his poetry is so permeated with with uh, with the understanding that the world belongs to God and that we as 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 uh, uh, beneficiaries of it should be constantly grateful to God It's so beautifully expressed in verse like uh, uh, if you remember that particular poem uh, what do you want Lord for these gifts that you enormous gifts that you are giving us this is the poem that should be translated in red. and read and there is another poet named Sam Sarzynski who writes about death and, and about about Things that are final in in, in human life, uh, again, an extremely good poet, and he writes he wrote a lot of sonnets, like Shakespeare. Write. <laughs> so uh, those sonnets are really quite w- worthwhile to 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 know. And by the way, kohanovsky also wrote a cycle of poems after the death of his daughter. Is the f- first case in Europe and probably in the world where a poet writes about a member of his family who died and sort of laments in those poems the death and describes the girl that died. Ursula, the Kochanowski's daughter, was something like six or seven years old when she died. And he describes her in most beautiful terms and he tries to come to uh, some kind of uh, closure after after her her, uh, death, but it doesn't quite work out, so he writes some more poems. So, you know, 16th century. Then there's 17th century full of very interesting uh, works. And you know what? One of the reasons that Polish literature is unknown 16th, 17th century especially, and 18th even, is that a lot of it is written in Latin. This is something that you first have to translate it into Polish, you know, for, for people to then translate it from Polish into, into, into English. Uh, the, uh, this lawyer, Polish lawyer and bishop also, that I mentioned before, pa- Pavel Vlodkowicz, wrote his treatises in Latin. And just recently, a uh, theologia politician in Warsaw uh, published his treatises in English translated from Latin. So you know there's this difficulty, but which also tells you how deeply steeped in Catholic traditions Poland was because just ordinary people could read Latin, you know, just unbelievable to us, but they did. It was not just for the clergy, you know it was for ordinary folk and and these uh, these uh, risings in in Latin, are really a stumbling block for many in, in Poland. For instance, there was a very interesting political uh, scientist in the 17th century named Fredron. He wrote his uh, his uh, works in Latin, <laughs> and he was he's totally unknown even in Poland, which I think is a great shame. Why is he unknown? Because you know, after the 17th century came 18th century partitions of Poland. People didn't publish Polish books. People didn't have no, you know, they fought for for Poland or they surrendered to the new power, but all those works that needed to be translated from Latin into Polish were not. So just recently, uh, somebody in in Warsaw translated uh, uh, Jan Maximilian Fredros treatises, political treatises uh, into Polish, three volumes. I have all three and, you know, you have the Latin on one side the Polish on the other side. Now, who on earth? (laughs) will 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 read such a thing, you know, in, in the broad world. They don't know Polish, they don't know Latin, you know and yet this is a very interesting uh, he's a very interesting thinker because this liberum veto, which you know has a terrible reputation in Poland. I don't know whether you know what that is, it was the right of anybody to break up the, uh, the deliberations of the same of the parliament if he so chose. And of course that led to the to corruption and so forth. But Maximilian Fredro defend defends this and he points out there is a co- the goal of the believer and veto is a completely different from what you know is being said that is encourages corruption the goal is to uh, make sure that the stupid crowd will not decide about the fate of of uh, something that's important and a few wise men would be able to stop this kind of uh uh, going towards the precipice. So it's it's interesting to to, to read his argument you know along these lines. Mm-hmm. So 17th century you know is untranslated from Latin into Polish, let alone uh, let alone you know into English. And then you get uh, the partitions of Poland and then you have of course the the romantic uh, geniuses, Adam Izkiewicz, uh, uh Cyprian Kamik Norvit, Jules Swobatsky and, and Krasinski, four great poets and writers that are absolutely probably the best poets in the Romantic period in the entire Europe. Uh, Mickiewicz's Pantadeusz has been translated into English several times. The old translations are not very good, but there are two new translations that appeared within the last 20 years. One of them translated by uh by I forget his first name, his last name is Johnson, was my colleague in Indiana when we when I was teaching there. Excellent translation. It's a it's a rhyme translation. And then there's another translation which is a prose translation by Christopher Zakrzewski, a Canadian of Polish background. And I when I was editor of Salmation Review, I published I published this uh, uh translation chapter by chapter because the Pantalevus consists of 12 chapters and so it's there but also published as a volume and I warmly recommend both translations. I cannot tell you which one is better because one of them is prose, the other one is poetry but they're great both of them. It's tremendous and if you read that you realize my gosh you know this man had an enormous huge imagination and what he describes is extremely important and without it's, it's a it's really a book that opens up Central Europe to you, I think, the poem of Pantadeus. It's really a novel length uh, poem, which also makes you think how did this guy manage to write it in rhymes <laughs> verse, you know and, and make it make it really interesting, not something like, the 17th century epic poems that nobody reads because they are so boring. Pantadeusz is not boring at all. So okay, so then if you go to poets like Norwich, extremely subtle, extremely philosophical, 100% Catholic, is unbelievably strongly Catholic. Norwich died of poverty, actually, in Paris. He, he died in an uh, old folks home run by the Polish sisters. And he was in the United States for a while. Spent some time in New York working. He was a sculptor also. And he, his short poems are exquisite. I mean, they they uh, they better than Keats. Uh, in some in some ways, I think they they uh, resemble Keats's poems. But uh, Keats is writing from from the very comfortable situation in his life, you know, uh, Norvid is always uh, writing from the situation of a man who stands at the edge of a precipice, you know, and and somebody can push him in. So great poet. Then Slovatsky, you know, any anybody that's Polish and read Slovatsky as a teenager will never forget it. <laughs> so I'm reading that uh, Slovakian poems. Uh, he also wrote long poems like, like Miskevich, Pantadevich, but they're not as good. They're part of it, they're good, and not, not, not the entire poem. I'm thinking of a long poem named titled Beniovsky. Beniovsky is a last name, and it's about a certain man who was named Benyovsky and lived in Podole, which is today's Ukraine. And Then Krasinski, which is a really a story of its own, because he came from an aristoc- aristocratic family and was pretty rich; those other people were were poor. And Krasinski wrote a play entitled *Undivined Comedy*, from which Dostoevsky stole stole almost an entire uh, part of the plot and 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 and, and, and uh, the idea. Uh, it's a, I very strongly recommend reading that play because it's a great play. It shows the fight between the old system that is corrupt, that is full of things that should be removed from, from society. Uh, but it has something in it that is genuine, that's true, that's important, that's crucial to humanity. And the new system, those who go... Uh, who went against the Bastille, who, who killed, the, uh, who executed the king, who executed others in large numbers. And which side is going to win? And of course, we know which side won. And, uh, but the, the play is so powerful that it's really, again, worth reading and worth staging. It. It's one of those romantic plays like Goethe's Faust, you know, that has a lot of... <laughs> spirits flying around so it's very hard to stage but at the same time it's very very uh, powerful and I think successful so you know these are the romantic poets and then as you go through the 19th century Poland has tremendous set of novelists there two of whom got Nobel Prizes by the way one of them Sienkiewicz for the book Quo and another one Raymond uh, for the book The Peasants Uh, but I like what a Polish poet Czerniawski, who lives in London, uh, said about another novelist Boleslaw Prus. Boleslaw Prus wrote a novel titled *The Doll* (Lalka). And this novel, Czerniawski noted, would have been better known than uh, than Madame Bovary, uh, Flaubert's Madame Bovary, if Poland were a big power like France. Since Poland was nothing in the nineteenth century, nobody read that novel. Nobody translated it. It's a very good novel, extremely perceptive, extremely well reflecting the the new the changes of the agricultural world into into a capitalist world, and uh, it shows well. It shows what much of the nineteenth century was all about. Uh, very very good novel. Trans- translated into English. Uh, but again, you know there's no no big push to, to for the novel to be uh, to be read and, and discussed. And again, I have to say you know you have the uh, you have the this rule that history is written by winners and Poland certainly was not a winner and has not been a winner so far. So all those things are forgotten. And then you can get the 20th century the, again poets, and a great poet named Spigniew Herbert, whom I had the pleasure of knowing, and he was put up for Nobel uh, Prize, but uh, uh, political considerations prevailed and just like Milos got the prize. So he's a great poet and translated into English and and, and, uh, he has his own circle of admirers in America and they're not Polish, you know, they're really, his poetry translates relatively well because it's sort of dry and uh, not dependent on some kind of flowery uh, uh, associations of words, so he's he's a good good person to translate. And actually, his complete works were recently published. I forget now by whom, but uh, edited by Adam Zagajewski, another Polish poet. So mm-hmm. you know you have a lot of literature, and I'm just touching. You know, here heads of some of the people that that are. Uh, in this uh, uh, group of great writers. And of course, one can speak about that forever.
0: Yeah, and excuse me, Professor Thompson, sticking with this for just just a couple more minutes, um, you know, it does seem even though we don't, in the United States and maybe in other parts of Western Europe, we don't know all of this, the, the richness of this Polish literary tradition, but as Bobby said in in um, in his remarks before you uh, walked us through the centuries, in a sense, the victory of this Polish tradition is the election of John Paul II, and that we had this man formed by this tradition who was put in this extraordinary role. But the problem is we just don't, we, we tend to think of him as this sort of universal figure rather than this man who was shaped by this great tradition that that you're telling us about. And one one more question, then I guess, and you can speak more to John Paul II too, if if you'd like. But um, you touched on this a little bit. I, I'm not sure that very many of our listeners will have ever heard of this uh, Sarmatism, and I, I admit I really hadn't heard of it. And I, but I've, I'm beginning to be fascinated by it. The, you know, as I sort of dig into it a little bit, what what is it, and what is its significance?
2: You know, this is the most difficult question that you could ask me. Okay. I wrote. A- entitled, Sarmatism or the Secrets of Polish Essentialism. And it, it's available on the web. It was published in a volume, Being Poland, by University of Toronto Press a couple of years ago. Uh, and uh, I, tried to exp- I tried to answer that question, you know, in the, in this article. And I don't know, I can possibly even give you any good idea, but I'll try. You know, 17th century, was the time when Sobieski went to Vienna with his army. It was the time when Poland thought well of itself. Poland was the largest country in Europe. It was still this way. Also, yeah, by, by the time Sobieski died, you know, things were just being destroyed. But uh, So, you know, people in Poland were strongly Catholic. They were looking at the world through the glasses that were created by centuries and centuries of Catholic thought and Catholic way of philosophizing because you know the when it comes to uh to philosophy uh, there's only one one way to to philosophize in my opinion and that is the one that stems from uh from uh greek logic you know two plus two must always equal four if you abandon that rule if you don't uh, uh if you don't pay attention to this your uh, eventually, you know, you'll go into places where uh, nothing makes any sense, and this is basically what happened to philosophy, European philosophy, nineteenth century and and twentieth century. You, 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 but anyway, the, the this this seventeenth century Polish nobleman, because we're really talking about the ten percent of. The population that was nobility, which was pretty large by, by uh European standards. You know, usually in Europe there are one, two percent nobility and the rest peasants and, and city dwellers. But in Poland the nobility was a large group. So if you take the 10% of this Polish nobility, basically the uh, these were the people educated in Jesuit schools or other religious Catholic schools, these were the people that had a piece of ground somewhere, you know, like hobbits. And these were the people that were ready to defend the civilization that they belonged to, which to them seemed only natural. This is the way to be, and this is the way to look at the world. And the Sarmatism meant that uh, I believe in God. And of course, this is a Catholic God that I believe in. Uh, I try not to do, I try to let others live and hope that they will allow me to live fatal <laughs> rule because this is what Paul thought you know that if they don't do harm to others others will allow them to live no it wasn't so So you know live and let live. I live in the best country in the world. I can read I can write I can go to the uh, to the uh, meetings of the same that is the uh, legislative branch of government. And nothing in this country can be done unless we, the nobility, agree to it by voting for it in the same. That's a very important part of Sarmatism. It means republicanism. It means that you have to uh, you feel that the normal way for a country to exist is to have the representative body and you and that representative body is elected by the people. And no law can be introduced without the agreement of this representative body. This is a very important part of Polish history, and this is why Poles always fight for liberty, because liberty to them is like air that they breathe. They must have it. Without it, you cannot, you cannot live. So you have this mixture of relatively good living that uh, 17th century afforded. You have the, uh, you have the belief that we the nobility are capable of construing a, 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 state, a state, uh state uh, uh, structures that are good for all of us. In fact, Polish nobility boasted uh, of having more rights than Western European nobility, and that was true. Because in Western Europe, you know, at that time already, you had absolute rulers, whereas in Polish... In, in Poland, you had elected kings. They were elected by, by the nobility, not uh, imposed by, say, the right of succession. And life is just great. And you help others insofar as you can, you don't harm others. Poetry of Kochanowski is a great example of Sarmatism. And the life is good. And let's see, what is this Browning poem which says, uh, all is right with the world. This is also very typical of samas All is right with the world. We have our life. We are free. Nobody can order us anything. We work hard. And this is what what we want to be forever. And we are not looking around and plotting against our neighbors and we hope our neighbors are not plotting against us which turned out to be completely wrong and also you can you can say that this is a very naive kind of welt and show because this is not the way people operate and you also could say that you know there was this large group of peasants and there's a this debate in Poland how badly of those peasants were whether they really so oppressed as some communists writers tell us or were were they really you know living relatively uh quietly and 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 well and i cannot answer that question but i've read this and i've read that I'm, I'm not sure so th- th- this kind of attitude towards life is was very characteristic of of those people in poland who who are counted as part of history because, as we know, you know, peasants don't have a history. Uh, that's of course not quite true, but uh, in most of remembered history, it is the elites, it is the nobility that we are talking about. You know, starting with ancient Greece through the Middle Ages and so forth. So the same in the, in the Polish nobility took it for granted that you know peasants don't count that our our life is what what we create. Our uh, social class is the one that is supposed to be there and always right with the world. Mm-hmm. So this this was the, the the way they looked at things.
1: You know, speaking of that kind of naivete, um, in particular about uh, you know com- what's coming from eventually from the east. Uh, in, in, in with the, the muscovites um you know recently with um some American conservatives um almost um I don't want to say um looking at Putin as somehow giving a, a historical account that perhaps may be accurate um but you know you've written a book on on Russian uh imperialism particular from a literary point of view um and I think many people at least in America at least there's there's kind of a growing opinion that perhaps maybe Russia could be is not just an imperial power it doesn't have imperial ambitions it could actually be just like the west. So do you have any comment on that because there's just more I I'm meeting more and more American conservatives who kind of see Russia as in some ways the the hope for the west.
2: I am I'm aware of that and I I'm so sorry about that. And I don't know how to counteract that. You know, This is, of course, completely and totally wrong. First of all, I think that in order to be a conservative, you have to understand what freedom and liberty are because a conservative is a free man a woman also. Uh, and without liberty, without knowing that I can choose uh, my religion, I can choose my uh, way of living, there is no conservatism. Conservatism means that you want to preserve what's good in the past and you want to pass it on to your children and to the next generation. In Russia, the idea that a person can make decisions by himself is simply unknown. That whoever is at the top, one person, is always always the one who decides. You have nothing to say. And if you are a slave this way, you cannot be a conservative. A slave cannot be a conservative, unless, of course, you know, in a different sense, uh meaning, you know, inside you can be free. But you cannot be a political conservative if you if you are a slave. And unfortunately, Russia do have this slave mentality, and not everybody and not to such a degree you know everybody but but it's there because this is how russian history has been constructed whatever they tell me at the top you know they tell me here uh, i'm supposed to pass it on to people at the bottom i do and this is the way russians look at at, at the world that's one thing second thing uh somewhere in russian in the russian uh, psyche <laughs> i can use such a Term, which is, I don't like because I don't like the term because obviously, you know, it's, it's sort of you're getting to too, too, too much things that too many things we cannot really express in words. But somewhere in the Russian mentality, yes, let's put it this way, is the idea of the Mongols press on, go, move on, keep going, dis- destroy and take over this territory. Now, this is something that Russians have practiced just as Genghis Khan had practiced. He didn't want really, he didn't know what he needed this land for, but he took it. Well, Russia has been enlarging its territory to the tune of 55 square miles per day for the entire 19th century. 55 square miles per day. Now, how many years in a century? And how many days in the the year? Do you understand? Now, this is something totally absurd and and totally unnoticed by the West, because most of the expansion was East. They took over the, the entire Siberia, which is killing a number of small tribes, by the way, completely wiping them out. But there's still some left South. I mean, the first conquest of Russia was the uh, Kazanian Astrahan two cities on the Volga River and then quickly Russians composed a song which sang Volga Volga matchnyaya which means Volga Volga the Russian river mother of rivers wrong Volga was a Turkic river an Turkic river not a Russian river so you know Russians have this pressure this something built into their uh uh into their uh, psyche this desire to take over. For what reason? Well, you become a great power. I suppose there's a good reason. But but uh, this is not conservative. This is not... It's it, it just totally alien, I think, to uh, to any re- reasonable conservative point of view. Conservatives want want to preserve, want to stay where they are and not be taken over. You know, the the idea of a hobbit is a conservative... Uh, idea, uh, and the Russians are anything but hobbits. So, this is completely wrong. And, second thing, when you hear this version of history that Putin <laughs> presented to Tucker Carlson, I, I actually listened to this entire thing. And, of course, this is a version of history that's been taught by the communists in communist schools all the, you know, since the communists took over. And it, I don't know about the 19th century, I have some. Some samples of it, but I would not dare, you know, to to speak uh, to, to theorize. Karamzin's notion of Russian history was also pretty much the beginning of this. But we'll leave this historical stuff aside. Let's just look at communist uh, Russia. Communist Russia was exactly telling the world the story that that uh, Putin told Tucker Carlson, and I'll tell you why it is wrong. Well, the facts are against it. When when Putin was talking about Belarus and Ukraine uh, as being reunited with Russia, well, it, it, they couldn't have been reunited because they were never united. Uh, Ukraine and, and, and Belarus and Lithuania and part of Latvia were part of the Polish-American Commonwealth, starting with the... Jagiello marrying Jelzviga in 1384 until the last partition of Poland, 1795. So it's four centuries, right? Four centuries, they were being part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Uh, when did Ukraine become totally within the Russian grip? Well, with the last partitions of, partition of Poland, 1795. And even then, part of Ukraine belonged to Austria, was given to Austria at that time. So there were parts of Ukraine that were never under Moscow's boot until after World War II. And these are facts of history. It's not opinions. It's a fact of history. So if it was in, you can say, Poles were also uh, colonialists because, you know, they kept those people. uh, uh, They didn't treat Ukraine as well and and that's why Kmierinski rebelled, agreed. But the point is that Kmielinski rebelled because he lived in this Polish tradition of liberty. I mean, they're oppressing me. I'm not going to allow that. I'm going to ask somebody for help. Little did he know that asking Moscow for help meant, you know, that that's the end of any freedoms he ever dreamt about. But the point is, you know, that he asked, uh, he asked Moscow for help in 1654. Uh, and for the first time, uh, Russia gained some Ukrainian territory was in 1667 with the Andrusovo uh, uh, Peace. Actually, it was just a temporary uh, stoppage in, in the war, and for the first time, the left bank of the Dnieper River, including Kiev into russian hands okay well so you know most of ukraine was as i said in polish hands until the partitions of poland so how could something be reunited when it was never united i have no idea and yet such nonsense is being sold by uh by by not just put putin but uh, by rather respectable historians in the united states because they studied uh they studied under people like Nicholas Riazanovsky, a Russian historian who has been writing histories of Russia without even mentioning that there's another nation, Ukraine, that originated in Kiev uh, and not writing about partitions of Poland at all as if they never happened. So the, 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 you know, this idea of Russia that American, some American conservatives have it's completely wrong and is based on Russian propaganda. That's all I can say.
0: Hmm. Uh, Professor Thompson, let's uh let's in let's end with this. Um you know, when we think about Europe, there's this um uh, Just this overwhelming secularism in places like Germany, um, Scandinavia, France, elsewhere. And then now, as as we're describing, there's this sort of nihilistic pagan invasion from the East, I suppose, in a a way. Um, What, though, do you point to uh, as kind of marks of hope? When you think about you know the future, of, the possible future of Christian civilization, the future flourishing of Europe and the West, what are the things that that sort of that give you hope?
2: Well, You are a mark of hope, one of them. <laughs> so that's that's you know something that should be remembered. I think, as somebody said, ah, uh, it was not the uh, it was not the uh, popes that that initiated. renewal in the church it was it was the non-clergy sometimes or clergy but of a new kind that organized that started some kind of new order or organized some kind of new uh, way of of proselytizing Uh, i think that when it comes to poland i still think that there's a lot of deeply seated uh piety in the people. And as I said in this paper that I read in Rome, uh, if I go to Poland, whether it's Warsaw or Krakow, or even smaller towns, I always see somebody praying in the church, you know, at four o'clock p.m., at five o'clock p.m., one o'clock p.m., somebody goes there to pray. When I go to uh, churches in Western Europe, (laughs) I recall one situation when I was in Dresden, Wanted to go to mass on Sunday, so I went to the to the church, Catholic church, uh, at ten o'clock. Thinking, you know, I'll I'll get some kind of mass, either beginning or end of the old one, a new one. There was not a soul there, not a soul. And I read on the, it wasn't advertising there saying, you know, there will be mass here at six p.m. for the Polish workers, Polish Mm -hmm. workers who worked in in Dresden, you know, as laborers. I have to say I did go there because I couldn't. I, I had other things I was supposed to do. So you, you go to a Western European country and you don't see this you know, underground current of piety. If you go to Poland, you'll see it. and I just give you such examples you know because they are, I think they say something about the country or what people treat as something normal. Uh, people who go to church not for, for the mass, but just to pray for a moment. Tell you something about the country uh, that you perhaps uh, would not hear uh, otherwise. People take it as a normal thing to just go to church to pray, just just without going for a service or ceremony. I just want to be there for a few moment and meet uh, Jesus in, in my prayers, and such things. You know, strike me as as a deep undercurrent of piety. In, In Poland. When I go to Zakopane, which is my favorite resort in Poland, uh, there's a little church there, and I used to go to mass there. And I once went too early, you know, half an hour too early. And what do I see? I see those old mountaineer women singing uh, hours. And it was so beautiful. It was so impressive that, you know, my husband and I just collapsed and didn't didn't go. Anywhere waited, you know for them for the, another hour to to get the mass these These are women that just come there of the, on their own. they don't belong to any organization or anything. Uh, they just go there to sing hours. So you know this sort of thing is visible in Poland, but not anywhere else. and I find you know this may not be something that is impressive, but but this the country still has this foundation of normalcy. Uh, I think so that's one thing second you know th- th- there are quite a few uh, Catholic uh, initiatives in Poland that I think uh, may uh, may bring fruit. Uh, the one that I'm sort of collaborating with theologia Polityczna. I'm sure you you are familiar with that you know this is something that uh, the secularists would be uh, find very difficult to attack because you know they tell the believers that they are primitive that they believe in magic and and, and uh things that are uh people educate, edu- educated people should not be believing in but you cannot say you know that about the lo politician because this is a very intellectual kind of group of people it's intellectual uh in the sense that it, uh, keeps, that it keeps up with uh, world publications concerning the most important things, and that uh, has, requires a certain amount of uh, education and, and understanding to even approach you know, a person that has no uh, philosophical uh, background Will find articles and books that Theologia publishes to be incomprehensible. So, you know, those primitive anti Catholic groups that exist in Poland cannot touch them because there's no way that they can get under the skin of the, of the organization, so to speak. So, uh, those things are there. There are a group of intellectuals that's still pretty strongly conservative. I have in mind people. In Krakow, you know, connected with Arcana and and uh, uh, Klupiagielonski is sort of secular, but but traditional in many ways. Uh, people like Legutko, people like Andrzej Novak, Krzysztof uh, Keller, Andrzej Waszko. You know, these are people that are professors that are, of course, you know, have doctors and and uh, have published many books. And it's hard to sort of make such people uh into primitives that believe in some funny religion and of course there's a group of priests that's quite uh, i i find very uh well educated and, and and writing good stuff people like this uh father okko who writes about homosexuality a great deal then there is uh uh the uh, priest who's actually a parish priest but also a professor at the seminary his name is Hilla. and uh, and i could you know mention other names father sally just published a very good book on 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 uh, on Catholicism actually in english what is our faith it's almost like a, another catechism except that it looks at things from uh, it's not sort of impersonal it's, it's a more personal book so you know that there are centers that are quite resilient it, it, the secularists in poland do not just have to do with uh with priests and and uh the faithful that are barely literate they have a very serious opponents in uh in various levels of Polish society so I think there's there is hope there and I still think that this new offensive, which is now beginning, uh, I mean, even the crosses are being taken off the walls of state institutions. I think this offensive is going to fail just as the communist offensive failed.
0: Well, that's encouraging to hear and and let's hope that Poland uh, can continue to kind of lead the way intellectually and spiritually for the renewal of the West. Our guest today has been Professor Eva Thompson. To all of you listening, uh, if you like what you've heard, please do like this, share it. Check out our website, spacealviinstitute.com. And for now, it just leaves us to thank you, Professor Thompson. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Okay. Until next time, God bless and live in hope.